This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news and surprise. We're here in your feed a day early this week because we wanted to use Labor Day to talk about labor. There's a lot happening in the labor movement around the country, and labor affects so many different issues. So we'll be discussing that today. And we're also going to share a conversation Beth had with Misty Challey about the interesting work she's doing to help solve labor shortages by working with underemployed populations. It's really fascinating work, and we know you're going to want to hear about it. And then we're going to wrap up the episode by talking about our very first jobs. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Misty. I had it several months ago. It's such a refreshing approach. And I think sometimes when we talk about labor, we focus more on the employee side than the employer side. And so today, I think we're going to have a nice balance of both of those. We're excited to share it with you. And if you are still looking for something to do, say, on the weekend of October 20th through 22nd, May we recommend a trip to Paducah, Kentucky, my beloved hometown, where we're having a live show Saturday, October 21st, and we have a full weekend's worth of activities. You guys, it's Oktoberfest. It's the French and Indian War reenactment at Fort Massac across the river in Illinois, which is one of my favorite events of the year. We have craft classes. We're going to sing karaoke. Like, this live show is just the center point of a very, very full schedule of activities. We hope you'll join us. We would love to see you there. You can get all the information at the link in the show notes. And next up, we're going to talk about the labor movement. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. 
and we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Beth, your conversation that we're going to hear with Misty is about labor shortages, which is the fuel, I would say, (laughs) for this current robust labor moment. We are seeing strikes and the threats of strikes and organizing across industries. I was really fascinated just last week to hear a short segment on RAs threatening a strike. (gasps) They were saying that Raymond Board is not enough to compensate them for all the work they do now. And unless the university starts to pony up some cash as well, they were going on strike before move-in day. Yeah, in case you called them something else on your college campus or don't know what we're referencing, RAs are resident advisors. Beth was one for three years of her college experience. It's where you tell people to stop drinking and openly flouting the rules in the dorms and have to deal with All manner of things. You deal with things like alcohol poisoning and eating Mm. disorders. I mean, I've did more to say probably a year ago now about how I think that job is bigger than you're equipped to deal with at 19 or 20 years old. So when I heard this, I thought, well, one, I'm glad to see other people having the conversation about how big that job is. But two, what a testament to how trendy organizing is for people in, in this college campus sector to be picking it up even in a role like RA, where you're supposed to say, oh, my gosh, amazing that my room and board has been paid for. Yeah, well, and it's such an interesting experience where you see organizing happening at a job you were in where you never thought like, oh, yeah, I should be treated better. Or you thought that and you never saw any sort of organizing or, you know, thought to organize yourself. That's the experience I had with Hill Staffers. That was a poorly paid job when I did it. It's part of the reason I left. And then to see people organizing, you're like, yeah. But I just think, honestly, post-recession in particular, where the message you heard all the time was, you're lucky to get an unpaid internship. You're lucky to get this job. You're lucky to have this opportunity. Did not lend itself to an environment in which you said, I demand better because I'm in short supply. But now that the labor shortages are so extreme, for a lot of reasons, we have an aging population, The Trump administration shut down immigration for several years. We're only just now getting back to where net migration was before the Trump administration, which I think is a huge component of the labor shortages. And for all those reasons, you have people that say, like, no, you need me, whether I'm a UPS driver, you don't want me striking, or a train operator, or a pilot. Like, there's all this demand, and they have an enormous amount of bargaining power, and I am thrilled that they're claiming it. Well, and of course, you cannot factor out covid where Mm -mm. a lot of people died, a lot of people retired early. 
A lot of people heard a message that you are critical to our economy. We need you doing what you're doing. And they worked under conditions that were terrible, constantly being told how valuable they were. And they saw that that value was not reflected in their compensation or their treatment. And so I think it's not surprising that as things are starting to settle down a little bit in the world, people are saying, "Okay, you told me I was valuable. You told me I was critical. I would like to be treated as though that's true. Yeah. Don't just tell me this is a family here. Pay me. That's what the money is for. It's my favorite quote from Mad Men ever. And I think we did have for a long time this sort of like emotional, we're a family, we're a team here. But it's like, no, that needs to show up in some concrete ways, especially with inflation, especially with the cost of living going higher and, you know, the interest rates rising, making it harder to own a home, student loan payments now being unfrozen and people looking at that strain on their pocketbooks coming back, that there there has to be more money. There needs to be more money on the check I get to do this work. Let's not dress this up or make this more complicated than it is. You are paying me for my labor and you need to pay me more if I'm going to continue to do it. And I think money is a symbol of respect. And often these strikes mm-hmm. are both about the money and about other forms of respect, about realizing yep. that we don't have good enough policies around family leave, bereavement leave, medical leave. We don't have air conditioning on trucks. Hello. Much of what you hear people saying is just, I'd like you to do better by me. Mm -hmm. And I think watching the parties adjust to this is pretty interesting because the Republican Party has always been thought of as sort of the party of the wealthy, protecting business, opposing worker rights, opposing labor unions. But you do see a swell in the party from people like Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, who they want to become the new working person's party in some ways. And on the Democratic side of the aisle, you have such a pro-union messenger in Joe Biden, who also confronts the reality of being a president who cannot have the USPS go on strike while he's in charge. And so balancing the considerations that, yes, we want better for these workers and we cannot have the economy continue to be beaten down by these enormous disruptions. So it's just a time of a lot of adjustment for people depending on where they sit in the political structure. Well, and it feels to me like the American populace is going through a time of transition and adjustment to how they feel about labor. I feel like we're finally sort of aging out of those old ideas from the 70s. My stepfather still gets mad about a union at this place he worked in the 70s. And I'm like, dude, that was a long time ago. The unions are different now. You see new unions forming. I think you see unions in places people don't expect them. I mean, the New York Times has a a very dramatic union labor dispute right now about scanning their tags to make sure people are coming into the office. I think that the coming back to the office component of labor disputes is super, super interesting. But I think you see there's just so many new places and conversations, be it Amazon warehouses, Starbucks, where people are able to take a fresh look and and think more carefully about who else is going to negotiate on behalf of the employees individual negotiation, which is what we were sold as the answer to so many things, didn't really work for a long time. And we need a better solution. It's especially interesting to me in workplaces where people have mostly worked remotely or don't have a lot of colleagues, because on the one hand, work shouldn't be a family. It is work. There should be some boundaries around that. The relationships are different. On the other hand, we do have a loneliness crisis in this country, and work is where we spend an awful lot of our time, and you do want to have good, solid relationships there and feel supported. And so I think 
especially in situations where people are more distributed throughout their day, uh, are unions coming in to just fill some of that relational gap? I think it's the shift from that individual mindset to a collective mindset. And I think that, yes, culture is always upstream of politics and and lots of things. But I just think some of it was just economic. Like, you could not have a collective mindset when it was like this dog-eat-dog competitive environment where you felt like you were lucky to get what you got. Uh, I think it's so interesting right now that, like, the labor shortages are such that people aren't even paying attention to minimum wage because nobody's paying it. They have Mm -hmm. to pay way more to get workers at basically every place. And I think, well, isn't that an interesting manifestation of, you know, I think we beat ourselves up and we talk about politics and societal norms. And we think so much of that is just, you know, intellectualizing and coming out of our own brains. But some of it's just the environment we're in, you know, and the environment we're in right now is very conducive to conversations about labor and real negotiations. I mean, the pilots right now are killing it because you know why? Everybody wants to travel. And so they're in demand and a ton of pilots retired over COVID. It's like all those components come to play where they say, you need us. And so we want more money. And I think it's great for people to realize there are lots of different ways to exercise power in a country Mm -hmm. where the government at a minimum is supposed to allow you to exercise your power yeah. <laughs> culturally. So you, even where something like the minimum wage doesn't go as far as progressives had hoped, to see that power shift into the private sector, that's really healthy that that people are taking up that power and figuring out how to navigate it. Well, this environment of labor shortages is an excellent transition into your conversation with Misty. Why don't you tell the people a little bit more about Misty before we share that conversation, Beth? We learned about Misty from a listener who has worked with her. Misty is the founder of the Critical Labor Coalition, which is a lobbying group supporting bipartisan legislation to address the post-COVID labor shortage that we've been talking about. And this coalition has partnered with the Second Chance Community, which is something that I have a lot of passion for, in addition to just thinking really broadly about who all is out there who can help make our economy go and how can we connect those people through meaningful policy efforts with employers. So I loved this conversation with Misty, and I hope that you all enjoy it as much as I did. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, 
which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. you're here and I would love to hear about the founding of the Critical Labor Coalition. How did this come together? Who brought it together? What was the impetus? Thank you, Beth. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I have been uh, representing franchisees and franchisee associations for over 15 years. And I was the executive director of the Coalition of Franchisee Associations, which is 22 different franchisee association groups, everybody ranging from Planet Fitness and Burger King to Meineke and Supercuts. So uh, regardless of industry, they're all small business owners and uh, their trade associations are members of the coalition. So in heading up the CFA, We were talking about different issues we could get involved in uh, regarding legislative priorities, regardless of industry. Like, what are they all facing? And the number one issue was the labor shortage. And so I started poking around and we, we wanted to start with the retiree community and how to get them back to work. So I reached out to AARP. They seemed like a logical first step. And we talked about some legislation that they were working on and One of the bills was expanding the earned income tax credit, uh, because right now, if you're over 65 and you do not have a qualifying child that you're taking care of, you are not eligible to receive the earned income tax credit. Uh, So we started working together on legislation that would get rid of that top tier. And actually, that tier was eliminated during COVID as part of some of the COVID legislation, but uh, expired at the end of 2021. So uh, we started there and, you know, being a government relations 
person in D.C., I got the attention of other groups like the National Restaurant Association that I work with and um, Hotel and Lodging Association and other groups like that. And they're like, oh, this is really good. We we're also facing labor shortages. This is a huge issue. And that's kind of how the Critical Labor Coalition got started, really, with the retirees. And our main goal is to focus on bipartisan legislation that would focus on certain communities to incentivize them to go to work or return to work. Um, Whatever we can do to help those communities is really where we're focused. I'm so curious about how you decided to start with retirees. Is that just a demographic? Is that like the sheer volume of people that are available or, or what made you start there? That's a good question. We had already been working with other coalitions and organizations on ways to get guest workers over to the U.S. um, and uh, work on those programs. And to be honest, retirees are great employees. I mean, Mm -hmm. they are reliable and hard workers. And, you know, some of them retired early and then because of COVID and other factors really needed to return to work. So that's where we focused because we hadn't heard of any legislation really providing those incentives. Um, And that's, yeah, that's why we started there. I mean, our franchisees love having retired workers come back to work. I wonder if that's also legislatively an easier lift than immigration and some of the other issues that you're working on. I will tell you, uh, immigration is, even saying the word immigration on Capitol Hill is kind of taboo because nobody wants to touch that. Yeah, so it's such a shame. It is. It is because everybody knows it needs to be addressed, but it is so politicized at this point that really it's it's a shame. And there are a lot of really um, good bills out there that people aren't willing to touch. Well, let's do our part on that issue today then. Can you talk a little bit about why, from a business perspective, immigration reform is necessary and what are some specific things you'd like to see in that category? I think everybody can agree comprehensive immigration reform is needed. The question is how to do that. So there are different ways to address immigration reform. Some people want to make it very limited on who can come over and for how long and whether there's a pathway to citizenship. And then others are more open to bringing a lot more people over. Uh, During COVID, as you probably know, there were a lot of restrictions on who could come over and when. And as a result, that negatively impacted the labor shortage even more because now we have less workers that we can bring over. So some legislation that we're working on is there's a a bill called the Essential Workers for Economic Advancement Act. It was introduced last session. And for many of my members, there's not an applicable visa program to bring potential employees over. It's either in the agricultural field or for more skilled workers. Um, So what this bill would do would be to create a brand new H2C visa guest worker program and allow service workers to come over and work. Um, And it's not a permanent program. They would return back to their country after the specific term that it's deemed, but they can come and work. They can, if they don't like that job, they can go to another job. They're not required to stay in that job forever, Um, but they get good experience 
that they can then bring home and they can earn money for their families or however they'd like to spend it. Okay. I think that sounds great. Another bill that we're really excited about is the Asylum Seeker Work Authorization Act. And this is a bill that is introduced in both the House and the Senate. In the Senate, it is bipartisan. Senators Collins, Sinema, and King have introduced it. And what this bill does is that it expedites the process in which an asylum seeker can start working before their application is approved or they have their hearing. So what this bill does is it shortens the window from when an asylum seeker enters the U.S. to 30 days. So within 30 days, um, they can be processed to make sure that they're not a threat and then they can work as opposed to the current process, wherein they can't work until they receive a hearing and are approved. Um, So right now you've got asylum seekers sitting in hotel rooms, unable to work in that hotel and waiting for their hearings. Well, and it seems to me that that compounds the political toxicity of the issue, right? Like our system is playing into some of the negative views the population has on immigration. And if we fix the system, we might start to soften some of those views that make it so difficult to do this work. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, it sounds like. Absolutely. And it's just streamlining the process. I mean, the process for refugees and asylum seekers entering the U.S. can take years. And, you know, we don't have that kind of time. We need the labor now. And I think they want to work. So um, it makes sense to speed up that asylum process uh, while making sure that these applicants are not a threat to the U.S. Yeah, it affords a greater sense of dignity to everyone in the process, I would think, much more humane and much more practical. Yes, and it eliminates that extra government assistance that they would need to have while they're just sitting around and waiting. So it actually saves money. Sounds like a win across every dimension. I, I wanted to make the motto of the coalition, well, that makes sense. Yes, I love that. <laughs> that. seems to be, I'm hearing that a lot lately. So we're looking for legislation that just makes sense. Um, yes. And hopefully we can get these pieces of bipartisan legislation passed this session. I am very interested, in addition to thinking about retirees and guest workers in your second chance hiring work. So will you tell me a little bit about that and what are the primary obstacles to second chance hiring right now? I feel like there was a time when the primary obstacles were non-regulatory, like it was just an issue of stigma. And I'm wondering if that's changed for your members and if you can talk about the regulatory obstacles as well. So the second chance workers is really interesting because we're really looking at that not from a legislative standpoint, really, but more of a outreach and education standpoint. You know, there are plenty of second chance workers that are looking for jobs. And, you know, most of them are eager and want to work, but they're faced with this stigma of having a a criminal record. And, you know, some employers are concerned about the stigma associated with them hiring those workers. So I um, contacted the Department of Justice, and you'll see a theme here, me contacting whoever I think might be able to help and eventually works out. And they were very interested because they have a second chance program. They connected me with the American Probation and Parole Association, and 
obviously their members are probation and parole officers. And I think that's a great way to kind of eliminate the stigma uh, because what we're doing is connecting employers with the probation and parole officers. So those individuals have a better idea of who's ready to enter the workforce. Oh, I, okay. I love that. That makes Thanks. sense to me. So what we're trying to do eventually is create an outlet two ways. One, to create kind of job fairs during their meetings. They're having a meeting in August in New York and we're going to, at a minimum, have a panel on it, but find ways to connect probation and parole officers with the employers in their area. So at least they have the contact information and they could say, look, I'm looking for this and I have this person available. Um, And the other way is to create just kind of information on our website to connect so that employers can just go on our website and say, okay, I'm looking for somebody in my area, put in the zip code and that will pop up. So that's eventually I'm really trying to get that up and running. In the meantime, um, I'm working with DOJ and APPA on a webinar just to give information to employers on, you know, how to find second chance workers. Are there additional steps they need to take to hire these workers? So we had a call on Friday and, uh, I'm working to schedule a webinar for that just as kind of a first step in the process for that demographic. Well, I would be so curious to hear about any test cases or what you learn after we have this conversation about whether that relationship with probation and parole officers supports retention. Because I feel like for, for businesses, getting people hired is one thing, but it is so expensive for it to not be a successful hire. A hundred percent. And I wonder if that might be, you know, a really supportive way to bring people back into a work relationship that that will last. I completely agree. And it is a challenge in the service industry, right? Because these aren't, you know, skilled worker jobs. These are first jobs, entry level jobs that some people don't want to stay in. But the truth is, this industry is in such need of workers that, I can give you a million examples of people that came in as a dishwasher and now are a franchisee and are very successful and wouldn't have otherwise been given those opportunities if they hadn't started where they started. So, yeah, I mean, the the retention question is very pervasive in the service area. So with second chance workers, that would be the same concerns. Well, as we're talking about retention, tell me about your focus on caregiving. Caregivers, I mean, I think that was such a hugely affected demographic during COVID from both sides. Uh, First, a lot of the caregiving institutions, you know, preschool and and nursery school and all those places had to shut down because for obvious reasons related to COVID and haven't been able to start back up. Additionally, as a result, people that were caregivers that had to go back to work couldn't find and still can't find places to put their loved ones or people to watch their loved ones, whether it be their children or family members, uh, what have you. So we really wanted to address that issue um, head on, but wanted to add an employment component to it. So uh, we're very supportive of a bill called the Credit for Caring Act that would provide um, tax credits for those that have to work. So there is a minimum work requirement, but who then go home and have to take care of, and it's a very broad definition, but take care of a loved one. And so any 
dollar amount that they're spending over, I believe it's $2,000, they can get a tax credit for that. So things like that, and they're, they're pretty much tax credit related. So we're looking in that area for caregivers. We're also looking kind of outside the box. What can we do to provide incentives for employers to have a a daycare in their building or within, you know, a, a certain area or where they are providing, you know, incentives for their employees or cr- credits for them to have their children or loved ones in childcare. So we're kind of looking outside the box to think of other ways that we can help support people that have to work and also take care of a loved one. So that's an ambitious agenda that you've described. And so I'm going to ask you about a couple of things that I don't see in your agenda today, not for the purpose of saying you should be conquering the whole world, because I really applaud your focus and prioritization. I just want to know how you got there. Because as I was thinking about obstacles to work, substance abuse came up for me poverty, access to transportation. When you're talking about obstacles to work, it's just a huge field. And sort of like my question about starting with retirees, how did you decide, okay, these are the communities that we're going to start with. These are the initiatives that we're going to push for. What's your process? Yeah, another great question. So when I formed the coalition, I was all over the place. Everything was related to the labor shortage, everything from transportation and housing to you name it. What I had to do, honestly, because I'm just one person at this point, was really focus on what is legislation that is directly related to working. So my ultimate goal for this coalition is to really have three different areas that we have an education piece where we can do kind of data and getting the word out to members of Congress and to outlets like yours, a legislative piece that we're working on, and then an outreach piece so that we can work with groups like the Second Chance Workers and the Parole and Probation Association, groups like that, so we can have events and really have in-person contact with those demographics that we're trying to help. So that's my my end goal. But to answer your question, we really needed to focus on specific demographics and what we thought that we could get done. The way we're narrowing our focus is we're looking at legislation that can actually get passed, which is why we are only supporting bipartisan legislation. Um, I think on behalf of myself and a lot of my colleagues on the coalition, we don't want to introduce a bill just to introduce a bill. And that's why some of the legislation has not yet been reintroduced because there's no point in introducing a bill that isn't going to have a chance of moving. So that's how we're narrowing it. And really, based on the interest of some outside organizations is how we're narrowing what we're doing outreach-wise. So we have a great relationship with DOJ and APPA now, and I think that's only going to grow. And I think as we're moving into the guest worker program, uh, we're forming relationships with refugee and asylum seekers on that front, and hopefully we'll grow our relationships that way. But, you know, we're not limited to that. If for some reason a bill gets some traction that will affect Uh, the labor shortage that we support will certainly change our priorities accordingly. 
So you sound extremely pragmatic and maybe like apartisan to me that this is just a need that everyone would benefit from being addressed and we'll take the measures that we can get to make progress along the way. Is that a fair summary? Yes. I have been in government relations for 25 years and I I want to get things done. And I think there are certain organizations in D.C. that feel the same way. I am a big proponent of a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. I was just going to ask if you've worked with No Labels. Oh, yes. No Labels, but Problem (laughs) Solvers is I am a big fan. And, you know, for every Republican member, they have to get a Democrat member. So they're even numbers. And uh, I've been very impressed by what they've accomplished and their attitude towards getting things done. So. Groups like that, we're working very closely with the Republican governance group, the Blue Dog Coalition, those types of groups that want to work together across the aisle to get things done. Well, do you have a call to action for our listeners? If someone is hearing this conversation thinking, this really speaks to me, I would like to be more involved, what can they do? Yeah, I would encourage them to look up Critical Labor Coalition on our social media and look at our website, www.criticallaborcoalition.org. We have a lot of information and ways to contact me directly. If you are a restaurateur, a hotel owner, or any small business owner and want information, I encourage you to reach out to me. Uh, As these bills move along, our individual member associations will be forwarding action alerts. So if you're a member of those organizations, please respond to those alerts. And, uh, you know, we can all get this labor shortage eliminated. Well, Misty, thank you for your work. And thank you for spending time telling us about it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thanks to Misty for sharing all of her insight and expertise with us. Now we're going to continue the labor conversation in a more fun way for our Outside of Politics segment and talk about our very first jobs. Beth, I don't know your first job. I'm so excited to learn this. My first job where I got a paycheck, so not babysitting. I mean, babysitting was really my first job, but but my first job where I got a paycheck was in a bank. I was a bank teller. Oh, I knew At this. First Security Bank and Trust in Island, Kentucky. Love it. I worked the drive through window some, which my daughter Ellen thinks is so cool because the, the little it. drawer, you know, is still mm-hmm. a very exciting feature of the drive through window. Or the tubes. The tubes are super exciting. We didn't have a tube. We just had the drawer. It's oh, a small okay. bank. One of my big jobs every single day was to hand sort the canceled checks and file them. Everything was pretty manual there. So I can still hear a name from my hometown and picture their checks because I touched the checks so many times a day. Oh, my gosh. What was your first job? My first job was the receptionist at the Kentucky Department of Highways the summer after my freshman or sophomore year of college. My mother worked at the Kentucky Department of Highways for many, many years before she went back to school and became a librarian. And so it was really fun. These people had like worked with my mother when she was pregnant with me. Everybody knew me. It was the easiest job on planet Earth. I just sat at the front in the lobby, answered the, you know, two to three phone calls a day um, and directed the three to four visitors who didn't already know where they were going. I spent a lot of time reading, cross-stitched several things. Uh, I think I taught myself needlepoint at that desk. I would go out to my car sometimes and just take a nap. It was the best, cushiest gig ever. It will surprise you not at all to hear that I brought a very different energy to my job at First Security (laughs) Bank and Trust. And I felt terrible when there wasn't something to do. It felt really important to me that there always be something to do. I'm pretty sure, looking back, that I was quite annoying 
to the career bank tellers who were fine with some downtime during the day. Because I was always like, is there a project we could work on? Does something need to be organized? I just felt like they're paying me to be here. I should be doing things. That's hilarious. So I did things as much as I could do them. And I still ended up with a lot of downtime. I can remember so vividly walking to get a chicken salad croissant sandwich from a local gas station for lunch and bringing it back to the break room and doing my little, you know, punching in and Mm -hmm. out and Mm -hmm. sitting and reading my book during lunch and just kind of thinking like, is this what, is this what it is? Like, is this what happens (laughs) when you're done with school? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, I love, I love a nice office gig. I'm not mad at it. Those have primarily been my main jobs. I worked at the Kentucky Department of Highways. I worked at Planned Parenthood of Central North Carolina, which I think now has a new name for the COO. And that was my first job where I thought, like, I would go in and there would be so much to do. I would turn around and and be like, oh, my gosh, how's it 4.30? I got here five minutes ago, um, which was always a nice feeling. But I never felt the pressure to, like, fill the time. Like, if there wasn't something to do that was my job, I wasn't, like, searching it out. Does that make me lazy? Or do I just work smart? I don't know. Tough call. It was a tough call. I think that bank was so good for me in so many ways. I learned a bunch of different skills. I learned a lot about people and money and how they manage their money. And I also felt a tremendous sense of responsibility. When your drawer is like five cents off at the end of the day, when you're doing the balancing at the end of the day, that is stressful. It is so, so stressful. Oh, my gosh. And so I think it was... A cushy gig in some ways, and then in other ways, it was kind of a lot of pressure <laughs> to work around that much cash and and to be in transactions that were really high stakes for people. I mean, when people are coming in and their loan payments are in arrears and you're kind of having that interaction as a 16, 17-year-old, it, it can be pretty intense. I think I learned from that job that that's not the kind of job I wanted. Like, I think I learned that... I want to do work that needs to get done, but I really don't like busy work. And so I was not going to thrive in an environment where there was busy work. That was not the case at the Planned Parenthood. That was very rarely the case at Capitol Hill. But I I thrive in an environment where I can organize my time with my own priorities. Um, and I always felt bad about that. I felt like it was like a character flaw until, you know, my husband was like, you don't like having bosses. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. And then I looked around at all my family members who also don't have bosses. Both of my parents are uh, one of four, and my uncle still snap on tools, so they're their own boss. My aunt was an interior designer and then a real estate agent. My stepfather's a real estate agent. My mom is a librarian who technically the principal is her boss, but the librarians in our audience know that really it's their own kingdom and they're in charge. And so I just was like, oh, I think I just, I never had a model for that sort of work. I only saw people who kind of did what needed to be done, controlled their own schedules. Outside of the Kentucky Department of Highways that one summer, like, I didn't really have a good model for that. You got to that a lot faster than I did in life, even though it is true for me as well, that I don't like having a boss and that I think that that's generationally connected for me, too. Mm Mm-hmm. The bank was good preparation for being an associate in a law firm because everything is very particular. It's highly regulated. There's a lot of hierarchy in the staffing. There are a lot of dynamics in the office among people. You can tell that everybody has has a feeling about each other. No one's neutral, really, on anyone else there. There's a feeling about everyone. I think that a struggle that I had in my career, both at the bank and at the firm, is that the skill set that makes you a good underling is entirely different than the skill set that gets you to leadership. And it's hard to make that turn. And you can't have the leadership opportunity unless you're a good underling. But then all of a sudden, you've got to go from questioning nothing 
and doing everything exactly as you've been told to deciding how things should be. And that's a yeah. rough that's a rough transition. It's interesting as I work back, like I always struggled not just with busy work, but like I would push because I'm an Enneagram one. So if I felt like there was something that was wrong and that needed to get done, even if it was way below my authority, I would push for it. So there were times when I saw like, no, this this needs to happen and no one's doing it. And that's part of our job and we need to do it. But it has to make sense to me. Like, I'm not going to just fill the time. It has to really be important, I guess, as I as I see it, which is, you know, the, the risk in a workplace where lots of people might see important things differently. Um, but listen, I still look back fondly on that that gig. That was a that was a good first gig. Just a lot of good, important life lessons there. It was also like hilariously the beginning of the Internet. And so I remember like teaching the other receptionists all these fun websites. I think we played around with a website that would let you change your hairstyle quite a bit. So, you know, really important work getting done that summer. I was so lucky to have the bank job too. I mean, that was a great first job and I was paid really well. I made 7.25 an hour. Nice. My mom sent me a pay stub of mine that she found in a book the other day. Probably one of those books I sat and read on my lunch ha! break. And I sent it to Chad to show him and he was like 7.25. I made like $5 an hour at the grocery store that same year. So it made me it made me feel like even more grateful for that experience. I have no idea how much I made. I'm sure I have a pay stuck there and I can dig it up. I think I might have like a Kentucky retirement account <laughs> from like that one summer and a couple other things sitting somewhere. I probably should check on that. Well, happy Labor Day to everybody. Thank you for joining us for this wide-ranging conversation about the different ways that jobs and labor shortages and labor movements are present in all our lives. We look forward to hearing from you in our email inboxes and on social media. We will be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep a nuance, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Cartoons! Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Vallelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Jeff Davis, Joshua Allen, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.